Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Hey, good evening. We'll, uh, we'll go ahead and jump in now. Scott's given us permission to start. It's okay now. Um, hey, I will tell you straight up that this chapter's a tough one, man. Not tough to, uh, you know, to hear. It's not like next week. Next week's just rugged and rough. But this is out of all of them, man. This is probably, probably the one that is the most complicated to teach. So, yeah, good luck with that is all I keep thinking. Um, I always like to have something for you guys to chat about. Uh, if you want to have a conversation, uh, this is a leading question. I'll be up front with you. Uh, it, it's meant to, to put all of us, including myself, in an awkward position. And so I'll start by being a little bit, uh, and I mean awkward in terms of we're going to feel bad after we see what the text does. I, I mean it that way. Um, but honestly, if you could create church to be, let's just say, in your favorite image, all right? It's just what you would like the most. And you're going to have church every Sunday be like, hey, this is how I'd like it. For me, uh, it wouldn't be in a building. There'd be very little singing and a whole lot of time hanging out in the woods, probably eating a lot of meat and hunting and talking about Jesus. If I was going to create church, that's what church would look like. If you're going to create church into something you would love, maybe it'd have to do with Sunday you know, afternoon football, I don't know. Maybe it would be on Sunday mornings. Talk at your table and go, okay, yeah, if I was going to do church, this is what it would look like. Okay, ready, go. There you go. I'm here in Mountain. There you go. Question? Anybody hear anything that uh, you're like, yeah, I kind of like that. Any good ideas come out of this? Mark may listen to this later on. I don't know. Any good ideas? Or you're like, yeah, I think, I think I'd like that. Mountains. Mountains, okay. Yeah, we put up in the mountains. Kind of hard to get here in Ornogo. Anybody else have one? At the beach. At the beach. Okay, that'd be good. Anybody else have beach? Okay. Huh? On the lake? Okay, on the lake. We got a lot of outdoor stuff coming here. Hopefully, I may have, I may have uh, tainted the well with that. Uh, I'll be honest, man, I'm not a singing guy, so there wouldn't be a ton of singing, there'd just be some. How many of you guys are like, no, I would want more songs? Okay, yeah, there are those people. Anybody here like me, like, a few less songs? Just, yeah, okay, a few of us will admit. All right. Uh, it's just interesting when we, we think about doing church, and how often that, uh, that we see churches get created, and it, it's interesting whether it's a church plant, or it's a church like CCO that's been around for a long time. Hold on, i got to do something. Here's the deal. I learned something. I'm about ready to pass out again. I'm talking to these guys about my brace again, if you listen to this podcast. What I've learned, these carotid arteries right here, the brace pushes on them, and I finally figured out 
that my neck swells when I teach. And I didn't know that. It's like if you were to do curls with your arm, how your arm swells. I couldn't figure out. And so every time I teach you guys, I get a little bit dizzy, but I was okay. <laughs> and I, would, I went to go preach this last weekend in Richmond, Virginia to high school kids. And I was really intense. And a couple of times, like, literally, I got dizzy. Like, where I was, like, stumbling around a little bit. And I finally figured out what it is. So I got to loosen this up just a little bit so I can breathe. There we go. All right. So anyway, back to the point we're making. It's interesting sometimes how we would create church in our image, how we would like it. Uh, I know for me, the services would be relatively short. There would be no small groups. Uh, you know, the whole idea of, man, my, my nightmares when, like, I, would, I used to be in a small group thing, and my wife and the ladies would sit around and have great conversations. And even with guys I know pretty well, it's like the moment you want us to talk about things. If you want us to talk about, we'll talk about life via sports, or talk about life via a lot of other avenues. But if we got to read questions off a sheet of paper, it's done, man. We're done. Like, we have forgotten how to talk. We're all like, uh, well, yeah. Uh, it just gets awkward. So anyway, a lot of times when we get creating church, uh, it's fascinating um, the things we'll do to create it in our own image, uh, to meet our own needs. Uh, and that's why you find people saying, well, I find God best in the deer stand. Or, you know, I bow down to, you know, at the 50-yard line of the NFL uh, in my season seats. Uh, there's a lot of things. Or people come to church and they're like, man, that's just not for me. I just don't like that. That's not my kind of church. Um, and, and again, I, I think it's interesting in our culture how we, how we bend church around our needs or about, around what we want. And man, tonight in this text is a living, living example of that. It's for a guy like Mark Christian or Michael DeFazio, it's probably not a complex text to teach. For a guy like me, this text is loaded with complexities, loaded really some just quirky idiosyncrasies about it that are, that are just odd. Uh, Jesus is barely, I mean, Yahweh is barely found, but a few times from now through the rest of this book. Uh, like I told you guys before at the very beginning, what we're getting into now is really what kind of preempted all of Judges. So here's the deal. What you find from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16, Samson pillars down, gone, dead, you know, he's, he's done. Really what you see is the, the civil unrest that Israel experienced. You know what I mean? It's fighting with these people, fighting with these people, not taking the land. It's Amorites, you know, it's you know, all these other ites that are coming after them. It's the Canaanites, it's the Philistines. It's this constant civil unrest. Um, and man, we see that play out in our world today, whether it's you know, unrest with you know, an immigrant population in, uh, in Germany right now. If you're watching the threat of civil war in Germany, and it, it's civil unrest. What we're going to find out right now is saying this is what caused the civil unrest. We're going to really look now at the heart of Israel. And we're going to realize that all the civil unrest they go through really comes from, it comes from a spiritual unrest within them. It's a heart condition. And it's going to walk through. It's going to show us. We're going to look at Micah's heart. We're going to look at the Levite's heart. We're looking at a whole tribe's heart. And we're going to see their hearts are corrupt. Their hearts are far from God. So here we go. Tough text. Let's get into it. Now a man named Micah. Um, you know, it's, it's one guy in Israel that's going to be pretty symptomatic of, of everything that's going to go on uh, in this guy's life. Um, Micah's not really, he's not really a good guy, and he's not a really bad guy. Uh, we'll kind of get into the text a little bit. It says, now, uh, now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, 1,100 shekels of silver were taken from you about which I heard you utter a curse. I had that silver with me. I took it. Now, first of all, as a parent, I'm like, yes, 
what I wouldn't give my kids to confess to the dumb crap they do. That would be fantastic. If the moment they do something dumb, I could get my kids to own up to it and be honest about it, great. Um, I will tell you that 1,100 shekels of silver really just means like 1,100 measures of silver. That would have been enough to live a lifetime on. That's a ton of money. Like in that day and age, mind-boggling amount. I don't know how to transfer it. There, there may be something in your Bible notes that tells you how much it is. Um, it says in here it's like 28 pounds. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 28 pounds of silver. Man, folks, in our day and age, 28 pounds of silver is a lot of money. So I don't know if somebody can go through, what's the price of silver an ounce? Am I in right now? You know what that is. Will you get a surprise of how much 28 pounds of silver is in our current economy? I'm now curious. Anybody else want to know that? Yeah, how much is it? About 9,000? 28 pounds? $9,000? Okay. It'd been a lot more. You could have lived on that for a lifetime back then. This is a ton of money. ton of money he's taken from her. And, uh, and basically, she utters a curse. He doesn't want this curse to fall on him. And, uh, and so he says, hey, yeah, I took it. You can think in this day and age, if you, know, if you had your son or daughter walk up and go, hey, you know that $9,000 you're missing? I have it. I took it. I stole it from you. Uh, as a parent, you know, you'd be pretty, pretty livid over it. And uh, then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. And that's going to be one of the few times we're going to see God's name invoked in what seems like a positive way. But listen, man, watch what this lady does. Watch what she does. She says, when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and cast idol. I will give it back to you. Yeah! Okay, I don't even know where to begin. We can go back to Deuteronomy now if we want to turn there and just kind of jump into this mess. Um, This is just an absolute train wreck. You know, first of all, um, she's she's going to take this money and say that she's giving it to God and that she wants to cast you know, a graven image and an idol. Okay, if you understand very early on, very early on the Ten Commandments, it's perfectly clear that we're not supposed to be living, you know, you know, with you know, cast image, graven images. You know, you go back to what happens when Moses goes up on the mountain. He comes back down. What's Aaron done? He's built this golden calf. And my son Levi is named after that text. Are you guys all familiar with that text for the most part? You guys know that one? Familiar or not familiar? Let's look at it. I can't tell if you guys know it or not. Uh, I think it's Exodus 32. Let's look at that. Pretty sure that's where it's at. I wasn't planning on reading this tonight, but we'll find out. Please tell me it's Exodus 32 because I'm really not positive. Hey, it is. I got lucky because I really didn't know. Um, it says, when the people saw Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron said, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and they brought them to Aaron. Uh, he took what they had handed him and he, uh, he, uh, he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, uh, and they, uh, then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the uh, calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Uh, the next day the people rose and they sacrificed burnt offerings, presented offerings. Uh, present fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat, drink, uh, and to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down to, the, uh, to your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, and become corrupt. Uh, they've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them. They've made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They bowed down to it. They sacrificed to it. They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Um, you know, God says, He's seen these people. Keep moving on down. Uh, says, verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain. With the two tablets of testimony in his hands, uh, they were inscribed on both sides. 
Uh, verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Uh, he took the calf they had made and, uh, and burned it in the fire. He ground it into powder, scattered on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Love that one. It's like rubbing a dog's nose in it. <clears throat> he said to Aaron, why, uh, why do these people do, and wh- uh, why do these people, what do these people do to you <clears throat> that, uh, that you led them into such a great sin? Uh, and, you know, skipping on, he keeps, you know, he goes on. Verse 27, he says, the Lord said to them, this is what the Lord God says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to another, uh, killing each his brother, friend, and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. Uh, and uh, in that day, about 3,000 of the people died. And then Moses says, you been set apart. Here's where the Israelites become priests. He says, you've been set apart to the Lord your day, for you were against your own sons, brothers, and he blessed you this day. So that's, that's actually the text where we get a Levitical priesthood. That's the moment where you're like, where, where do they get a Levitical priesthood? The text says that, you know, Moses says, whoever shall the Lord rally to me, and that day the Levites rallied to his side. Uh, my, own, my own family, that's why my son is named Levi. Uh, is that, a, you know, it, earlier in the text, I think you get a chance to read this part. This says they were making a laughing stock of the name of God. And I prayed, Father, give me a son who will be a warrior for your name. A God who will be willing to, to strap a sword to his side and do whatever he's got to do to defend your name and your honor. Uh, and I pray that he would be, have the heart of a priest. And, uh, and so what you find is at, from that day forward, Levites, they're set, they're set apart in the tribes. So that's why when you get into Judges, you know, they don't even get their own territory. You know, their allotment's going to come through the other tribes. Um, so, yeah, we don't even get into any more detail. So moving on. Uh, when he returned the eleven and chuckles of silver to his mother, he saw me consecrate the, uh, my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image uh, and to cast on it. I'll, I'll give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver. What's the difference? Huh? Yeah, 900. Yeah. He took 200 shekels of silver. You see the difference? How many did he take? Okay, how, many, how much did she say she was going to consecrate to God? Yeah, all of it. So it's starting to feel a lot like the whole Ananias and Sapphira thing we get into in the book of Acts is what it's starting to feel like. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, um, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into an image of the idol, and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. And in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. It's a heart condition, folks. It's a heart condition. And this is early on, early on what what the writer's trying to say. If you want to understand what the problem is in Judges, I can show you through the heart of Micah. What you're going to find out later on in this text, and I'm going to go ahead and kind of give you a trump card. God has a tabernacle. God's got a place for them to worship. It's in this city called Shiloh, and it's not even that far away. It's not even that long. It's just a few miles away from where Micah lives. It's not like it's some crazy distance, you know, and he's, he's up north and Shiloh's down south and he can't get there. No, no, Shiloh's not even that far, man. Micah wants to get to Shiloh. Micah can get to Shiloh. What Micah says is, I want this and I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to create my own temple. I'm going to create my own tabernacle. I'm going to create my own Godhead right here. In fact, I guess I'd say Micah as far as he wants to invent God and he wants to invent church. And he wants to invent a priesthood. So what does he do? He makes an ephod. We're not going to go into the whole thing of what an ephod was. Let's get some cool Old Testament history, but to get through this text, I'm not going to camp out there. He makes an ephod, which is a priestly garment, 
not just an ephod, but he installs one of his sons. He's not even a Levite. He installs one of his sons to be a priest. He can't do that. I mean, he's living completely outside of, of what, what God deems as being, this is the way it's supposed to be set up. He's not even following anything from the Old Testament now. It says, a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. Ah, I want to slow down for a second, because I I'm, I'm want you guys, because you're sharp, I want you to learn to catch this stuff. So I'm going to read that again. I want you to look for the problem, okay? We've been studying this text a lot. It's there. Find it. Here we go. I want you to be like bloodhounds real quick. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living with a clan of Judah, left the town in search of another place to stay. What's the problem? There's a problem with this guy. You ever met somebody new and you think they're a little shifty and you just don't know why? You ever met somebody like, dude, I don't even trust them and I don't even know why I don't trust them. You ever had that feeling about somebody? Often? You ever had that feeling you didn't follow it and you got burned on it? This guy's story doesn't match up. From the very beginning, the writer's trying to tell us the story doesn't match up. Let me read it again. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who'd been living with the clan of Judah left the town in search of some other place to stay. What's the problem? It's there. Be like Sherlock Holmes right now. He was from Bethlehem, but he was living in Judah. Yeah, you guys are getting it. There's a problem with this guy. So a lot of times we'd fly through a text right now, we wouldn't catch that. Catch that stuff. There's a problem with this guy. The fact he's not living with his own tribe, his own clan, I mean, they should be still in the process. This is early in Judges. They should be clearing... You know, they, there's things that the Levites need to be doing in terms of establishing a priesthood. He should have been with his people. And the very early on, you find this guy. He's not with his people. I don't know why he's not with his people. I don't know his story, but I know he's not where he's supposed to be. He's not where he's supposed to be. We know that much. He's MIA from his own tribe, and he's kind of just wandering around. Wandering around, honestly, in hostile enemy territory. He shows up, and he says, he left that town in search of some other place to stay. Uh, man, anytime I meet somebody that's not where they should be and they're just kind of wandering and they can't seem to land and they don't know what's going on and I know that, man, it, it may be an addiction issue or it may be all kinds of stories, but I've met people in my life. I'm like, okay, you've got no reason for why you're wandering. You've got no reason for why you're just kind of showing up, why you're floating around. And every time I'm always like, dude, there's more to the story. There's more to you than meets the eye. Same thing with this Levite right now. Same thing with this guy. He is not good news. Goes on, it says, on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. <clears throat> Micah asked him, Where are you from? He says, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. He says, I'm looking for a place to stay. And Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest. <sighs> okay. Just because somebody's a Levite doesn't mean they can be a priest. All right? You've got to be from the, the family line of Aaron. So not all Levites are priests, but they are a priestly tribe, okay? They, as a Levite, you could work at the temple. As a Levite, you could administer. Uh, there's a lot of roles you could play. But this guy has no God-given right to do what he's about to do. No God-given right. And all of a sudden, here's Micah. You talk about a moron. He meets this guy, and he's like, be my father and my priest. My challenge in that moment is always be careful. And I know when I look around this room, there's a lot of wisdom. You guys have lived life. Uh, and, and so let me encourage you to pass this wisdom on to your children. I mean, always tell your kids, be careful about who you welcome in your life to be a voice of wisdom. 
to be a voice of father and priest to you. And I don't know, I'm sure if, if we were to go around and somebody in here has got a story of somebody you entrusted, somebody that you listened to, that you let in, that's supposed to give you great counsel, great advice, and you didn't know them well enough, and they worked their way in, and you got to know them, and they started becoming a, you know, a real significant leader in your life, and the next thing you know, you're getting screwed in this deal, and you're getting bad advice, and uh, your life is getting disrupted. And this is, a, this is a textbook case. This guy is a nomad. This guy's not with his people. He's got no right to do what he's doing. And now Mike is a fool because he's saying, dude, I don't even know who you are. Never met you before, but I'm kind of doing religion on my own. And guess what? You carry the last name Levi. Heck, I know you got no right to be a priest, but I'm going to make you my priest. And I'm going to move you into my town. I'm going to move you into my house and you can become my father and my priest. Yeah, this is messy. Mike said to him, he said, live with me, my father and my priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels, shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Now I'm going to go off on another tangent. And I, uh, I'm going to hit this from a different angle. So here I've just attacked the Levite and I've attacked Micah. Now I want to come back and hit this from a totally different angle. Graduated from, uh, from Ozark and uh, got my degree, went into ministry. And, and honestly, had really good ministries wherever I went. Fantastic ministries. And, uh, and again, this is not the case of CCO, but I think it's a caution. Because even this is, if this isn't you, it may be a young preacher you meet someday. Even if it's not you, you may bump into somebody and you're like, you know what? I'm going to remember that text. I'm going to remember that story. Because I don't know who God's going to lead in your path someday. Where, you know, you're sitting out working in the yard or you're, you know, meeting a new neighbor. And, uh, and I can tell you that for every Micah, there's a church out there that's a lot like Micah. And, uh, and I could tell you a few stories right now that for 10 shekels <laughs> and ephod that he gives him, his clothes and his, and, and his food, for 10, 10 shekels and a set of clothes, there's a lot of preachers out there that have been bought. They've been bought. And they get churches that flat out own them. And churches that honestly aren't creating something in God's image, churches that honestly aren't pursuing the kingdom churches that honestly aren't aren't interested in, in, in fashion they're so so caught up in their own traditions so caught up in trying to create church like their parents had it or create church like it was done 100 years ago or trying to create church like how the town wants it and preacher after young preacher that i've met in my life have found themselves utterly trapped by church in this case i defend the levite this guy's also trapped by by a really poor leader and he's just been bought and now he's there He's, got a, he's, got, he's drawing a paycheck from this guy. I mean, what can he do? I mean, how can you really even challenge him? This was not the way the Levites were supposed to be taken care of. This is not Levite code. Levite code is, you know, you would you know, get your food. Have I talked to you guys about Fat Eli yet? Have we talked about Fat Eli? Oh, man. Let's talk about Fat Eli. Golly. I can't say it and not go there. Uh, turn to 1 Samuel. we got to talk about Fat Eli. Because honestly, Fat Eli would have been living about the same time this is all going down. What am I doing, man? Okay, where is this? Jesus, help me where this is in the text. All right, here we go. Ah, oh, what am I doing, man? What am I doing? i got to find it real quick. Just give me just a second. Here we go. I found it. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse 12, we're going to talk about Fat Eli. This is not in the notes for tonight. 
Hopefully this Holy Spirit's prompting. Because right now I just broke out in a sweat. Because I know this is going to take me five minutes to talk about this. And then I'm going to get back to this Levite. Oh, here we go. But it is fascinating. 1 Samuel 2. Alright? Love this text. It's crazy. Crazy text. 1 Samuel 2. Uh, verse 12. said, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Alright? Now it was a practice of the priest. That when the people... It's practice of the priest... Uh, with people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, that while the meat was still being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork with it in his hand. He'd plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how uh, they treated all Israelites who came to Shiloh. Okay, I told you, this stuff's all happened about the same time in Shiloh. Here you go. So basically what you need to picture is, in order for the priest to get his food for the day, he had to trust God. They'd offer sacrifice, he'd plunge in the fork, whatever God brought out, whatever he, whatever he got on that fork with one plunge was his allotment of food for the day. So you want to talk about dependence on God. This is the equivalent at some level of, of manna and quail. I mean, this is, all, this is how you get provision. And so, man, if you stab it in, that, that's what you got. You know, you can imagine as, as kids at Thanksgiving, if all of a sudden you get one shot at the turkey, <laughs> whatever you get is what you got. That's all. There ain't nobody, nobody else getting any more. That's what it's like. And it's meant to teach the Levites, sacrifice belongs to the Lord, and the Lord will give you what you need. Don't take any more, don't take any less. All right, so here we go. It says, but even, this is an important verse. Out of everything I'm about to read you, this is the most important verse. But even... Before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. But if the man said, Let the fat be burned up first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And the interesting thing is, But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. He keeps going through Samuel. So, anybody here cook? Any cooks in here? Okay. Anybody here make a, a pretty bean pot roast? Okay. All right. So, if you're going to make a pot roast, and you put that thing in like a roasting pan, and you start the cooking, and it's got fat on the outside of it, if I pull that thing out before the, the fat is cooked off, and I stab the fork in there, and I lift up, what happens? You get, yeah. The whole thing comes up off out of the roasting pan. But if I wait until the fat renders down, and I wait until it cooks out, and then all of a sudden I walk up and I take a fork and I stab it in that and lift it up, what do I get? You get a piece. You get a portion. That's how the Levites are supposed to live. Here's the problem. The Levites were stabbing the fork in before this thing had cooked off. And they're probably stabbing in, walking around back, probably got another fire going out back. It's not like they're eating raw meat. They're making these big barbecues in the back with with the Israelites' offerings. This belonged to God. And they were looking at it going, well, why does it matter? And they're just cooking, they're just burning off food. This was the way, this was the path that God gave them to find sacrifice for sins. And we could go through and explain why God did it that way. That's not tonight's topic of conversation. This was God's method. This is what he said to do. But they wouldn't wait. they just shove it in, stab it in, take whatever they wanted. Here's the interesting thing. Turn with me all the way over to chapter 4. Crazy story. The Israelites are going into battle. All right? Uh, and they're going to go fight the Philistines. And they think, we're going to take the ark with us. And so they grab the ark, ark of the covenant, and they take it into battle. They were never supposed to take the ark into battle. The ark was not meant to be a weapon of war. 
The ark was meant to be a place of worship, okay? And so they take it, and they're going to manipulate God to fight on their behalf. If we take the ark, God will have to do what we want him to do, okay? They're using the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot. And, you know, we got the ark. God's got to stand for us right now. You know, it's kind of like, it, yeah, left handers. So they take it into battle. He says, but the ark gets captured, gets taken. And, man, the whole thing of what it does, the Philistines and whole tumors of the groin, yeah, they get tumors in the private areas. It's a great story. You need to read it. Fascinating what God does. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Don't have time for that. God's sense of humor is fantastic. Fantastic. You can read ahead on it, but it is honestly one of those stories that is like, wow, God, you are fascinating. Um, we don't have time. To be one. That's too many tangents. We'll finish with this tangent. So, Ark gets captured. Eli, um, his sons are the ones that are taking the meat. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas, okay? His two boys. His two boys are the ones who grab the ark and tell the rest of the Israelites, come on, we're going to take the ark. We'll go kick the Philistines' rear. we got the ark. God's got to fight for us. You know, he's got to stand with us. we got the ark. We can do this. So his boys just take it. Eli hangs back. All right? Eli stays back in town. He's in Shiloh. says, now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I need to skip ahead. Verse 12. said, the same day, Benjamin ran from battle and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived... There was Eli, sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told uh, what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what's the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so he couldn't see. He told Eli, well, just come from battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli said, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. And also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the guys who are stabbing the fork in, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli, watch this, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the, gra- of the gate. His neck was broken. Yikes. Feeling that right now? <laughs> Feeling that? His neck was broken, and he died. For he was old, for he was an old man, and... Heavy. You see it? He had led Israel 40 years. Let me ask you a question. Why is Eli fat? Yeah. Eli's a fat man because, again, he's taking sacrifices that belong to God. He's stealing from God himself. This, this whole heart condition, it, it's infected all over Israel right now. Their hearts are not following the mandates of God, the principles of God is established for them. And now this Levi, as we go back to Judges, is doing the very same thing. He's now trying to receive a paycheck, a private paycheck for God's work. And that's why I said, man, I know a young pastor, a young pastor that finds himself in this dangerous place where they've been bought and they're owned, whether it be by an eldership. And that is not, I'm not saying that is not CCO. I love this place. But, man, I know guys I went to college with, and they find themselves living in this parsonage, barely making it month to month. they got no money. They're living, you know, day to day almost, trying to get their money, trying to get this. And they can't, it's such an oppression of that situation, they can't even find, them, find their way out. They can't even, and they, man, they've got, you know, elders or leaders in the church who are living great lives, and here they are living, you know. And I, it drives me crazy when I see a, a pastor that finds himself in that position. And this Levite, man, he's got himself in a bad place. He's getting his 10 shekels and a shirt, and that's about it, and his clothing. And he is owned. He's an owned commodity now. He's owned. Uh, and, man, that doesn't just happen to priests. <laughs> that happens in a lot of different professions. So moving on. 
He says, verse 12, So Micah installed the Levite, which he has no authority to do, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know the Lord will be good to me since the Levite has become my priest. Bull. Baloney. Micah, you are a fool. Verse 18. In those days, Israel had no king. Writer setting it up again. He says, And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle. What? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? They already got the place they're supposed to settle. They already know where they're supposed to be. Um, trying to figure out if I want to lay like, how much time we got? Yeah, I kind of want to lay out this big, I got this really cool thing that I want to save as an aha moment for the very end. But I think we have a lot more fun with it if I just lay out the aha moment now. And you can, you can read about the Danites in light of what we know in Scripture. So I'm going to give this big, like, reveal. I hate doing this because it'd be so much fun if I was like, what? It's cool to me. You may not get geeked out over it all. Um, Danites are a screwed-up tribe. They're screwed up royally. In fact, do something for me real quick. Uh, i got to find my notes here, which I haven't been using, and I need to. Um, here we go. Go to First uh, Chronicles for me. Okay, find your, find your Bible, First Chronicles. And we're going to look at chapter 6. Let me find this here. Okay. What we're going to look at in here is if you read chapter 6 and you look at verse 63, and then you're going to look... At verse 77, I'm not going to read them all out loud. And in fact, if you just read this entire section, I want you to start looking um, where the tribe of Dan is ever even mentioned. It's going to mention Benjamin. It's going to mention tribe to tribe. It's going to list Naphtali. In chapter 7, you get Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh. You turn, you get Ephraim. You get Asher. You keep turning the pages. You're going to find tribe after tribe after tribe. But something is uniquely missing. The tribe that's missing in all this. In fact, we're going to look at another thing. I want you to look at Revelation now. And to me, this is the most telling moment. And I don't know why I get geeked out about this stuff, but I do. Revelation chapter 7. I find this. I'm, we're going to read all of this. Um, I want you to read verses on your own. Um, read verses 5. Uh, we'll start in context. Read the 7, verse 4. And I want you to read all the way through verse 8. Let's go. Somebody read that at your table. Somebody read that out loud.
you find it? Where'd you find? They're not there. Okay. This is more than an, this is not an oversight of scripture. When you go through and you look at First Chronicles and you understand that we're, they're giving the, the royal genealogy, they're telling all the names. The writer completely leaves out in First Chronicles. Dan's not mentioned. Zebulon's barely even mentioned. Mostly in First Chronicles, Dan's not mentioned. You get to the book of Revelation where it's listing the tribes in heaven, and I'm not going to get at 144,000 what these numbers mean. We're not even touching that tonight. But the point being is, what's missing? One tribe. I'm going to tell you that what happens in this chapter is such a big deal to God that from this point forward, the Danites are exiles. The Danites are gone. Their blessing is removed. It is a big deal what's about to happen in this chapter. And it's a hard one to teach. It's a hard one to unpack. Enough that when you flip all the way back to Revelation, they're not even mentioned in a book. And I had never noticed that until, honestly, studying tonight blew my mind. I was like, are you kidding me? So, I saw a commentator mention that. I was like, what? Blew my mind. They're not even mentioned. Yeah. Genesis 49, David's blessing his sons. Yes. Yeah, yeah, read it. I, I did, it's, it's a great... Yes. It's great. So Dan is one of the tribes. And, and, and honestly, the country they're supposed the, the, the territory they're supposed to take is pretty much right in the middle. It's not like God's asking them to take this fringe area. They're surrounded by their brothers, they're surrounded by family. They're supposed to take the centralized area and they don't take it. What they will go take here in a second, and we're going to pack in this chapter is they take the wrong region. They don't do what God told them to do. So here we go, chapter 18. In those days Israel had no king, and Israel did uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm so used to reading that. Uh, Israel did what they saw fit. I mean, it's not in there, so let's back up. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had yet to come into inheritance among the tribes of Israel, which is baloney. They were given a place to settle. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zor and Eshtol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans, and they told them, go explore the land. You weren't told to go explore the land. You were told to take this territory. Okay, you weren't told to do this. And, and half the time, if, you know, if you've ever been an employee and you have people that work for you, half the trouble you get into is when you get somebody a specific job, and instead of doing the job you've given, you find over there they're, they're dabbling in six other things you've not even mentioned for them to touch. It's like, what are you doing, man? I gave you this job. This is the work I asked you to do. But you want to go do everything but that. That's like what the Danites are. They're, they're not faithful to the Lord. He says, do this. Do this. They bail on it. Moving on. It says, the men entered the hill country of Ephraim, and they came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. Five guys. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of a young Levite. Probably his accent, I'm guessing. I don't know. Um, so they turned there, or maybe he's, he's been in their area before. I don't know what it is. So they turned there, and they asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? They realized, this guy's in the wrong place. Shouldn't be here. Shouldn't be serving here. He told them what Micah had done for him, and how he had hired me, and I'm his priest. Basically, he's owned Micah owns him. And they turned to him and said, Well, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. This guy's no priest. He's a, he's a fraud. And so the uh, priest answered him, said, Well, go in peace. Uh, your journey of the Lord is, has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Lish, uh, where they saw the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. 
and their land had lacked nothing. They were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians, and they had no relationship with anyone else. When they turned to Zor and Eshtel, the brothers asked them, well, how did you find these things? They said, well, come on, let's attack them. Uh, we've seen that the land is very good. Uh, aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go, go there and take it over. And when you get there, you'll find a, an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put in your hands that lacks nothing, whatever. All right, here's the deal. This land is in the promised land. Okay, I, I don't want to mistake. It's in the promised land. In fact, this land was probably what was promised to Joseph's sons on the other side of the Jordan. This land is not where they're supposed to be. They're taking a land that belongs to another tribe at this point. The, yeah, the tribe of Israel is going to expand. They're eventually going to take that all over. But now what they're going to set up by taking this, they set themselves up for civil war. They set themselves up for infighting. They're taking something that doesn't belong to them. It's not the right place. It's not the right time. It's not God's plan. He goes on. He says, And 600 men from the clan of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zor and Eshtol, and on their way, um, they camped near Kirajirim in Judea. Um, this is why uh, we can skip through some of that. We're going to move down. So then the five men, verse 14, who had spied out the land of Laish, said to the brothers, uh, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. Uh, so they, tur- they turned in there, and they went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place, and they greeted him. Uh, and 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood there at the entrance to the gate. Five of the men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, and the other household gods. And the cast idol, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When these men went to Micah's house and they took the carved image and the ephod, the other things, um, you know, uh, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered him, be quiet, don't say a word, come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? I'm going to preach to the choir yet again here. Uh, this, I don't know the applications because I don't know what you guys all do for a living. But in my mind, I automatically go bigger versus better. Uh, this, this is a train wreck situation already for this guy. But I, I, I talked about the, the young preacher who all of a sudden finds himself in a situation where he's, he's owned. I also not, uh, you know, about guys who all of a sudden are in a good, this guy's not in a good situation, but they go from a situation that's tolerable. All this guy is shift. He shifts from one area of disobedience to even a bigger area of disobedience. He bails for this, and he honestly bails into something far worse. Because what this guy's in now, this guy's in an absolute train wreck. Uh, so when these men went to Micah's house, oh, wait, 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 said, be quiet, I already read all that. Skip down, then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, their household gods, the carved image, and he went along with the people. Because now, hey, look, he's got a whole tribe now. He's not serving little old Micah. Dude, the guy's got a whole clan now. He's got a, he's got a big church. You know, he's, he's set up to win now. Moving on, it says, uh, putting the little children, the livestock, the possessions in front of them, uh, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. And they shouted after them. The Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called your men out to fight? Remember, there were 600 of them. He replied, You took the gods, plural, that I made and my priest and went away. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? <coughs> This is that moment we get to some application where Micah has created gods in his own image. He's created these graven things that he holds on to. Question for you. What is it that if if it was taken from you, you'd utter the phrase, what else do I have? Is there anything that you can think of in life that if it's gone, you find yourself looking going, Gus, what else do I have? It's a tough question. There's that moment with Jesus where 
he tells the uh, disciples that are following him, he says, go on, leave if you want to do. If you want to leave, leave. You want to go, go. You know what Peter says? What's Peter say? Yeah, where else are we going to go? You're the only ones that have words of life. But in our world today, what is it? What is it? I can remember um, for my family, and I remember it being a big deal for my brother uh, whenever my uncle sold the family farm. And I remember if, if Mark was in here, he'd like, yeah, it hurt. And I remember him having the attitude, man, what else I got? I got nothing else to live for, man. I want to be a farmer. It's all I ever wanted. Now Mark's got his own farm. He's doing great now. But I can remember that. And, and, and I don't know. Sometimes the, the depth of wound, uh, man, I'll be vulnerable right now, right now uh, with you guys. People have talked so much about, man, you're lucky you can walk. You know, you're so lucky that, you know, you're not in a wheelchair. And, man, you must have really strong faith. And I've, I've been really honest. Man, I, I don't know. And I may regret these words being on a, on a podcast someday. It's like, man, I don't, I don't know that my faith has anything to do with it. I don't, I don't think it does. I said, because I look at so many times through Scripture when Jesus will say, man, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. And, uh, you know, honestly, when I'm, I'm laying flat on my back, my arm's on fire, and I'm, I, I won't quit moving my, my feet because I'm afraid if I do stop moving them, they'll never move again. And at that moment, I'm just crying out to God for his mercy. God, God, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, and not knowing whether or not he'll do it or not. Um, I was in, uh, at SciComm, and... Uh, had two moments where God had a really good opportunity to prompt my heart and change my mind. One of them was on the plane, and, uh, and I don't think God ever tempts us, but I think God tests us sometimes, and he tests our heart. And the uh, Holy Spirit started working on me. It started kicking my butt just a little bit. I'm sitting on this plane, and I'm kind of uncomfortable on the plane because, you know, they're bouncing around, you know, and I'm on one of those small little jets, and the seats are kind of tight, and I'm up against the wall, and I, I can't get comfortable in the seat, and I'm I'm kind of finding that place where I'm feeling just a little bit of whining creeping in. And I'm like, I've told myself I won't whine. I'm just grateful for what Jesus has done. But privately, I've got this little inner, inner whine dialogue going. And I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of being a little crybaby on the inside. You know, man, I'm uncomfortable here. There's nobody in the plane that knows me, so I can get a little gruff, a little grumpy inside. Like, man, this stinks. And then all of a sudden, I never forget. Never forget. I watched the stewardess, this guy, steward, I guess, bring in one of those wheelchairs that fits down an aisle. And he brought this black gentleman in next to me and placed him right next to me. And I realized, God, I need to shut my mouth right now. You've been merciful to me. And uh, merciful beyond measure. More than I could ever, ever deserve. And then I was at SciComm and I was preaching. And I'll never forget this guy, uh, a guy named Garrett uh, from Virginia. He's a youth pastor out there. And he... Uh, came up to him and he called out my name. He said, hey, Jason. I turned around and I looked down and, uh, and Garrett was in a wheelchair at that moment. And uh, took my breath away. Took my breath away because I, I want to keep this heart of gratitude towards the Father. And I remember just taking a knee to talk to Garrett for a second. And I said, wow, what is your story? And he goes, man, I was, uh, I was driving a car. I got rear-ended. He's got four kids. They're all junior high and high school kids, it looks like. And uh, totally turned T10 in his spine. Uh, to where he'll never walk again. I just looked at him. I was like, man, Garrett. Garrett, how? How do you process this man? And he was honest with me. He says, man, I was really bitter with God for a long time. I was angry. I was upset. And I said, man, Garrett, how? He was. I, I just realized my, my pastor told me that I needed a trigger. And I said, well, what, what's your trigger? And he said, uh, my trigger is the incarnation of Christ. And I was like, Garrett, I don't I don't know that I rightly understand. What do you, what do you mean? 
And he says, well, I've been in this chair for several years now. And he says, I, I won't get out. And he says, and every time that I get frustrated, I, I think of the incarnation of Christ. And, uh, and I remember being so humbled when he began to explain that to me. He says, I picture the God who being completely in control humbled himself to losing all control to where he couldn't walk he wanted to go and, and then in humility he just looked and he said and he soiled himself and he became obedient to the father and taking on the, the humble attitude of servant and man I feel tears just well in my eyes and I realized in this moment wow God what could you take from me what would be taken from me that I'd say I have nothing left and I don't know, uh, I don't know what it is for you. I've questioned that, like, God, where would my attitude be if I wasn't walking today? God, where would my attitude be if I was still in the hospital today? God, where would my attitude be if I couldn't play catch with my kids, if I couldn't walk? And I realized, man, my, my understanding of people who have gone through pain is, uh, is an understanding. That's, a, that's a, a massive faith journey. But I wonder, I've, I've wrestled with this text. When Micah says that, he says, you took away the gods I made, my priests, and went away. What else do I have? And I question, man, God, what would it be that you removed from me that I would say, what do I have left? What do I have left? And I don't know, maybe it's a spouse. Um, I know that in, in a group this size that there's been death, uh, whether it be with a spouse or children or parents, that have caused immense grief, immense pain, pain that I will never understand. And, and those are tough questions to wrestle with. Um, those are tough questions, and they're not, they're not like you, you find a, a nifty little answer on a Wednesday night to those questions. I think they are, are long journeys. Uh, I think they're difficult journeys. But I think in the same way, uh, if Micah fashioned things to be, to be gods in his own life, it's a caution for us to make sure that we don't do the same. If we were to lose a house, a car, if we were to lose our retirement, if we were to lose our business, what is it that sometimes we carve out with our own hands that would be very difficult to trust in the Father because we carve this out, we've made this, and at some point it almost becomes a point of worship. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, again, it's, it's a heavy conversation. Uh, hopefully it resonates at some level where you can, you can process it. Um, but I, I had to ask that question as I studied those lesson tonight, going, man, God, I worship the outdoors, and I worship hunting, and I worship fishing, and I worship my own independence, and I worship the fact that I can go and do what I want to do. And God, if you took those things away... Could I still worship you with a sincere heart like Garrett? And so I looked at it and said, Lord, I don't know if it's my faith. <laughs> I think it's more your mercy. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. So I don't know. Does that resonate with you guys at all? Does that make sense? Does it, does it click or is that like, I don't understand anything you're hitting on right now? Does it click at all? Click? All right. Let's move on because we don't have a ton of time left. Um, Let's get through this, this chapter. We're going to come back to this in a second. So the Danites answered, don't argue with us or some hot-tempered men will attack you uh, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way and Micah, seeing they were too strong to him, turned around and went back home. And then they took what Micah made and his priest and they went on to Laish against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with a sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and they had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. And here is a huge part coming up. The Danites rebuilt their city and they settled there. They named it Dan. It never really gets called Dan. After their forefather Dan, who was born in Israel. Um, uh, though the city used to be called Laish, the Danites set up for themselves uh, 
idols. And here we go. This is, to me, another massive point we're going to live in for a while. I want to see if you can find it. The Danites set up for themselves idols. Actually, I'm going to let you guys. You guys read verse 30 at your table. Read 30 and 31 and look for the aha. Talk about that for a second. Find out. What is the aha moment there? If you're not sure, just read it again. What's the aha moment? Yeah. She got it right here. Anybody else find that yet? Did you guys find it? What is it? Which one did you find? Your aha moment. Did you guys find something there? Yeah. There's a, an old proverb that says, God had children and he has no grandchildren. God has children and he has no grandchildren. Here's the text. It says, Where the Danites set up themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of captivity of the land. Let's go all the way back to Exodus 32. All the way back. We just read that text. Moses comes down from a mountain, tells the Levites, ride on my side. You would think if anybody understood idolatry, that Moses would have taught it to his kids. You understood. You would have thought. Moses' kids would have caught it. Moses, Moses' kids would have understood how bad idolatry is, how much God hates it. You know, when Moses has to stand there and watch 3,000 people get wiped out, you would think those conversations would have been had as they wandered through wilderness before they headed in the land. Moses was the guy who warned over and over and over, no idolatry, no, no idolatry, over and over. Moses was the guy who, who warned all of Israel. Here you find, watch this, here you find it. The Danites have themselves. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan. These guys are setting up absolute idolatry. Here's the tough thing, man. What's it like when your own kids go against the very God they're called to serve? I don't know. I don't know. I can't imagine. If, if I could let my imagination play for a second. I'm not saying that people from heaven are allowed to watch us here on earth. Uh, I know I've used to heard the expression, you know, your grandfather would roll over in his grave, you know, type phrases. But can you imagine how much Moses' heart breaks right now? It's his own family that are leading people away. It's own family are leading people astray. You know, growing up, you'd always hear that, you know, preacher's kids are the worst. You know, you've heard those kinds of phrases. And I can tell you, I know Mark really well. And Alex and Christian, are, I mean, Alex and Brayden are great kids. But you don't hear these phrases, man, preacher's kids are the worst. This is where that kind of thing comes from. I mean, truly, Moses' kids are the worst. They're horrible. They're horrible. And I think if I could push anything for us to talk about tonight is what does it mean in your family to have first-generation faith among your kids? God has children, but he has no grandchildren. That, I mean, I can't push hard enough for, for you all in here that are grandparents or your parents. Your kids' faith has got to be their own. 
It's got to be their own. That there's nothing you're going to be able to do, and they're going to stand next to you in heaven, and you stand before God the Father, and you claim the blood of Jesus, and says, come on with me, and you want to reach back of their hand and walk them in with you. It does not work that way. It doesn't work that way. You don't stand before the Father in heaven, having lived a life you know, of holiness, having lived a life before him, and all of a sudden he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter your rest. You don't reach back and grab your kid's hand and walk them across. That's not how this rolls. Your kids have got to be faithful. They've got to own this faith on their own. Your grandchildren have got to own this faith on their own. And man, I'm living this in my own life right now. I'm watching this play out constantly. My prayer every single night of my kids' lives, not figuratively, literally. I pray over them every night. I lay my hands on them. I pray over them. My simple prayer is this. God, may they walk with you all the days of their life. I don't care if they always like me. I don't care if they always walk with me. I don't care if they always, you know, value what I've got to say. But my prayer is constantly, God, may they walk with you all the days of their life. Because I know that's the only thing that matters. And what you've got here is Moses at some level. I don't know what happened between him and Gershom. I don't know where the fallout is. I don't know what, I don't know why the dots don't get connected. I don't know. For some reason, that, that, that baton of faith doesn't get passed to the next generation. And it's not like a small thing. I mean, truly, what Moses' grandsons are going to do, because they don't rally up, grab a sword, and say, anybody who bows down to this graven image, just like what happened with Aaron, we're going to kill you all right now. That's what that Levite should have done. If that Levite were to go back to his heritage, he should have grabbed a sword on his side and started slaying people for worshiping an idol. But he doesn't do that. He leads them. These people lead them into this kind of worship. It's a terrible thing. So much that they will literally take an entire clan, an entire tribe of Israel away into apostasy. Gone. Gone from First Chronicles. Gone from the book of Revelation. Gone. Gone. And I look at how many family lines it happens the same way there. That because we didn't pass that baton of faith that a grandparent held on to dearly, and because they played the thing, well, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to let them find it on their own. I don't want to be forceful about it. I'll just let them figure this out on their own. And they paid this passive faith thing. They never actively shared their faith. They never actively communicated the importance of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Or fathers that do that. Man, I'm going to let my kids kind of figure that out on their own. I'm just going to kind of hopefully they'll figure their way. They'll find their way. And because they passively lead and they don't actively communicate the importance of salvation, the importance of the redemptive work of Jesus, and it never truly gets passed, that all of a sudden you wonder, or we wonder, why our children and our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren don't walk with Jesus. At some point, Moses doesn't pass his baton to his own kids. And at some point, his sons don't pass it to the next generation. And truly, this is no small matter. They wipe a tribe off the face of Scripture. They wipe them out. It's not like they just kind of go over here and start a little city. They're wiped out. They're not even mentioned in Revelation. They're gone. Bye-bye. Gone. And that, to me, is an overwhelming proposition. To me, it's sobering. It's heavy. I, I think about that, man. What does that mean for Justin? What does it mean for Levi? What does it mean for Sidney? What does it mean for, for Silas? And not just then, what does it mean for their children? And if I taught them through my act of sharing of my faith, if I taught them in the way I handed it down, have they learned from me what that looks like so they can actually do the same thing for their children? Because if I don't model that to them, how are they going to have to model to their children? What happens in two or three generations? I don't know. It's a burden that I carry. Because I want nothing more than my children to walk with Jesus all the days of their life. I want nothing more to spend eternity with my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids 
and I don't want my last name to be wiped off the annals of Scripture because I couldn't hand off the baton properly. And honestly, I don't want my kids to lead others astray. I don't want my kids to lead other people astray because they, they never truly picked it up. So it's not just that they're wiped out, but they take a whole tribe down with them. And that's painful. I'm just sharing my own heart. So just because you off the baton doesn't mean they Absolutely. No, 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 that's true. Yeah, yeah. Just because you off the baton doesn't mean they'll receive it. But I think sometimes we live in a, in a generation, my generation specifically, where, and the generation younger than me, um, we don't want to force things on people. We don't want to, you know, we want to be careful. We, want to, we don't want to step anybody's toes. Everybody's got their right to find their way, and everybody's got their right to figure things out. And, and that's what I see happening. Yeah. So, tough chapter. I told you out of all of them, this for me was the hardest one to teach on. It's hard to, you know, I, I equate this, that if you like, if you like fried chicken... Uh, this text is like when you when you pull out the back, you kind of got to dig for the meat just a little bit you know, on a piece of chicken. Uh, this text is the hardest one. I thought I felt like it's the hardest text in all of Judges to unpack with 17 and 18. If, as we've been walking into it, it's not that I, I dread any scripture, but I knew coming in, I was like, 17 18 is going to be the hard one. And, you know, what I would say is a couple of things to kind of wrap up on is, man, don't create church in your own image. Don't, don't set up substitutes for God. Uh, and whether that's a passion, a hobby, a job, career, family. Don't, don't carve images that aren't real and, and don't try to create image God in an image that, that makes him palpable so he can, he can set on your mantle. Um, you know, and, and be careful of that. And then for me is, is a constant challenge of, of looking at it saying, man, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm handing the baton of faith on to my generation, my kids, so they can continue handling that on uh, in lineage. So we're going to wrap up tonight. We may not have gone as long as we usually do, pretty close. Um, but that's a tough chapter, man. That's the toughest one. Next week, you need to bring a puke bag straight up because it's gross. Next week is violent. Next week is rough. Next week is gross. It is vile. And it's fun to teach on. I'll just say straight up. Next week's a blast because it's like unpacking a movie. And uh, I can't wait. So thank you guys for being here. We'll call it. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.